Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is anointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Em. Well, good morning again. If you haven't yet met me, my name's Brant. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. And it's my joy. It's my joy to be here. It's my joy to, to teach the Word of God uh, that Emelina just read for us this morning. But before we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me um, that we'd ask the Lord's help as we begin. Yeah, Father, we, we come to you and um, we're so conscious at Christmas time of our need of our brokenness, Father, of the way that um, our lives in this world is just not the way that it should be. And God, as we come to you, we ask, would you, would you in your mercy and your grace, would you continue to do the work of salvation that you've begun in Jesus, that you've begun in many of our hearts, would you do it here? Would you grow us by your Holy Spirit? Would you cause our hearts to be receptive to your word? Father, would you help us to respond to your word with trusting faith that puts sin to death, that delights in the grace and the goodness that you've given to us in Jesus, our Savior? Father, for those that maybe don't yet um, know Jesus, Father, would you be at work in their hearts this morning, even in this room, drawing them to love and to trust and to delight in you the same way uh, that you have been working in our hearts? Lord, we ask all these things for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. So Christ City, we're in our third week in our Advent series this morning. 
And we've been going through the narrative in Luke chapter 2. So we began our, our first week and we looked at the birth of Jesus and the good news of what it means that God has become incarnate, that God took on human flesh and was born for us and for our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And then the following week, we looked at the first response to the good news about Jesus' birth and the way that that happened in Bethlehem. We talked about the way that the angels went, sent out by God, and they announced the good news to the shepherds that were out keeping watch over their flocks by night. And so many of our Christmas songs are, are singing about all the time. So many of our nativity scenes are depicting uh, these scenes. And we looked at the response to Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at yet another response to Jesus, number two, response number two, and then we'll look at the, the third and last response next week. And we're going to look at the response of a man named Simeon. And though Simeon will receive Jesus with joy, just like the shepherds received the good news about Jesus with joy, this passage of Scripture begins to introduce a more challenging element into the Christmas story. The, ch the challenging element is this. Though God himself has come to save us, though God himself has come to save us, not everybody accepts it. Not everyone will receive him. We need to understand something here as we open Luke's narrative because Luke is a historian. Uh, he's writing to us. He opens the book and talks about the way that he's creating this careful account to describe the events of Jesus' life and death to this man named Theophilus. But he's also a really good author. He's also a really good author. And these Christmas stories that we've been looking at are really just the introduction to Luke's work, to the writing that he's done. And by the way, it's important for us to recognize that the book of Luke is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament, which is just one of the four stories about Jesus' life and death and resurrection in the New Testament. But it's actually not just the Gospel of Luke that Luke wrote. Luke wrote one book called Luke-Acts. We separate Luke and Acts out into two parts in our, our Bibles today, but they're really one work that have a cohesive narrative from beginning to end. A narrative that describes both the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, but that also goes on in the book of Acts to talk about Jesus' ascension into heaven. The way that he poured out his Holy Spirit on the first followers of Jesus, these Jewish followers of Jesus, and how through those followers of Jesus, the good news about him spread and went out to expand and to fill up the whole world as more and more people came to know and to love Jesus. And increasingly, in this story that's begun with Luke chapters 1 and 2, with this introduction that we've been reading, full of foreshadowing of the rest of the story that we've been reading, this narrative arc continues, and as it continues to grow and expand, Luke increasingly focuses on the way that Jesus was rejected by many of his own people. He focuses on the way that Jesus is accepted in a surprising way by non-Jewish people as this glorious salvation of God goes out into the world. And it's Simeon's response that begins to foreshadow that reality in Luke's writing. That's what I want us to, to look at this morning as we begin to open up this text. And as we do, there's an encouragement that I, I want to just share with all of you. It's this. I think that there's an opportunity here for us. There's an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts, to, to come before the Lord with some honesty this morning, 
And think about the way that we are responding to Jesus. How am I responding to him? Am I responding to him with humble and obedient and trusting faith? Am I responding to him and seeing the good news and then just turning away from it? Am I going to forget about Jesus when I pack up my Christmas things? And we're all part of this story together. God has come to save us. How will we respond to him? So we're going to look at three points this morning. We're going to look at obedience and patience, point number one. Revelation and glory, point number two. And wonder and division, point number three. <clears throat> Let's grab a little sip of water here. So look at our first point with me, obedience and patience. And read Luke Chapter 2, verses 22 to 25 with me. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So our passage begins with these details of Mary and Joseph treating baby Jesus the way that devout Jewish parents treated their children. It really reads like a careful following of Leviticus chapter 12, which is this passage in the Bible that describes how a Jewish mother is to... uh, treat herself and also her son, how Jewish parents are to treat their son. They follow very carefully the instructions that were given to them by God in the Bible. Jesus is circumcised in verse 21, but we skipped that verse because it was uncomfortable for us. And he was circumcised in verse 21, and then we have Mary's ceremonial purification that's mentioned here. There are sacrifices that are offered to God in this passage. And in the case of Mary and Joseph, because of their poverty, it is just too turtle doves or pigeons rather than a lamb. And all of these things are according to the commands of God in Leviticus chapter 12 in the Bible. Mary and Joseph trust God. And because they trust God, they obey him. And Luke wants to point that out to us, that we would see that. And similarly, Simeon is described in verse 25 as being righteous and devout as he waits for the consolation of Israel. And righteous and devout here, these are two adjectives that are really just used to describe Simeon in the same way that Mary and Joseph were just described. That Simeon is a man who is trusting and humble, patient, obedient to God according to his word, the Bible. These details are really important for us, Christ City. They're important because throughout Luke's first chapters, he's been careful time and again to show us that everyone who's begun to receive the incredible good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, everyone who's begun to receive this good news has been characterized in this same sort of way, by a humble, trusting faith that puts their faith into action as they patiently wait for God and they obey God. For example, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are in chapter 1 of Luke. You may not have read that, but I encourage you to go back and read chapter 1 of Luke. In chapter 1, verse 6, these parents of John the Baptist that the story really begins with, they're described this way. 
It says, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And of course, the narrative in chapter one and chapter two as well describes Mary and Joseph as being these people that are full of this earnest, humble devotion and obedience to God. And they obey God throughout the story. They, they trust him. Mary even trusts God in this surprising way when, when she's told the message from the angel, a message that, that she, a virgin, will conceive and bear a son at great social expense, by the way, and social cost to her. How does she respond to God and to this news? She says in verse 28 of chapter 1, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then here in our passage, Simeon, again, is held up as this character of model, patient expectation and waiting in obedience to God. He waits for the consolation of Israel righteously and devotely. So I think all of these things, which we might just pass over in the narrative, I think they're all important details that Luke wants us to see and he wants us to understand. He wants us to see that it is only those who turn trustingly to God, those who turn to him trustingly in repentant faith, willing to obey him, who will receive the salvation and the comfort that God offers. And I want to clarify something, just to be real clear here. I'm not saying, and I don't think Luke is saying, that you have to be perfect to receive God's grace. Just be really clear about that. That's not at all what Luke is saying. Luke is all day long talking about the goodness of God and his salvation that comes for sinners like us who are the opposite of perfect, who are deeply flawed and sinful and who struggle in all kinds of ways in our lives. Salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God that's given to us. But this gift is, and I think it's important for us to realize, it is received by those who are willing to turn to God. By those who are willing to turn away from how we've been living our lives in contradiction to him and living towards him in obedience. It's received by those who come to him in repentant faith. That's how Simeon was waiting for God. Waiting with patience, righteously and devoutly. Certainly not a perfect person. Certainly not the one who saved himself by his good works. But having a posture of God, toward God, of repentant and humble faith. So I think it's worth asking ourselves at this point in the narrative, we're jumping right into an application right at the beginning here after some teaching, but I think what's good for us, I think what's what Luke wants us to see. It's worth asking ourselves, how are we waiting for Jesus? Because Jesus has come. He's come once. The Bible's so clear, and I think our lives illustrate this fact for us as well, that there's a lot more that we're waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus to come again. When we have the good news of his salvation and many of us have received that good news and, and we respond in faith and we know what it's like to live in relationship with God, we're still longing and looking forward to the time when he returns. When he comes again and when he finishes the work that he began and all is made new and we see him face to face. And the question for us is how are we waiting then? Are we waiting for him obediently with repentant faith? Are we waiting for him the way that Paul instructed Christians to wait for Jesus? I'm going to read you a text that Paul wrote in just a second, but Paul is someone that Luke traveled with. Paul talks a lot about salvation by grace through faith. 
And Luke knows that because Luke traveled with Paul. He knows that this is a gift for us. But they also know and they keep affirming the way that, that we are to wait with an expectation that is repentant and obedient. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Paul writes this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That reads like Luke chapter 2. That's the, the birth of Jesus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. This is good news of great joy that will be for all the people, like the angel said. But he continues, and it trains us. This good news trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Christ City, this season is a good opportunity to consider how are you waiting? How is it that you are waiting for the second coming of Jesus? Whether you are a student looking at the career that you will pursue, whether you are single and considering who you might date, whether you are retired and considering how you'll spend the years of your retirement, how are you considering, how are you waiting patiently for Jesus? Are you living a life of repentance? A life that seeks to obey him and to follow him devotedly in every area of your life. That's what Simeon was doing in the story. As Simeon waits for Jesus devoutly and righteously, waiting for the first coming of Christ. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. See, Luke tells us Simeon was waiting for something. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when I think of consolation, because I don't use that word in my day-to-day -day life, I think of consolation prize. And that's definitely not what Luke was waiting, or what, what Simeon was waiting for. Consolation prize is just a prize you get for coming in last, right? You know, you, <clears throat> you did poorly, you know, and so here's your consolation prize. That's not what we're talking about this text. No, the word consolation has to do with comfort for those who are in mourning. Consolation is comfort for those who are in mourning. And this is important because the cultural context of Jesus' birth is oppression, subjugation, suffering, hardship, a long, long period of hundreds of years of waiting for God to finish and to be done with the judgment against Israel for their sin and to bring comfort and salvation, the forgiveness of his sins, of sins, to return favor to his people. Simeon's waiting for this, longing for God to bring this blessing and forgiveness and salvation. And he's an old man. He's been waiting for a long, long time as part of a people that have been waiting for generations for God to bring the good news of his salvation. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 26 to 30. See the way that he's been waiting. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came with the Spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, full of longing, waiting to burst out with words of prophecy. He's there at the temple and he looks out and he sees Mary and Joseph and Jesus. He looks at the dawn of God's salvation approaching him. When he looks at Jesus, he sees the one he's been longing for. When he looks at Jesus, he sees the salvation of God. Jesus is salvation because it's through Jesus that God comforts those who mourn. It's through Jesus that God forgives sin. It's through Jesus that God frees us from sin. It's through Jesus that God reconciles us in relationship with him, filling us with his Holy Spirit, comforting us as he dwells within us, drawing us into relationship with himself. Jesus is salvation because it's through Jesus that now that spirit works in us, changing our lives, filling us up with good fruit that is seen in love for God and love for our neighbors that we didn't have before. Jesus has come as consolation and comfort according to the promise that God made in the Bible. There's promises like Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 5 that we've read a few times this morning. We're going to read it again. Promises like this that I'm sure filled Simeon's imagination and his longing and his prayers as he anticipated this very moment when he would look and see the salvation of God. I'm sure these are the pages in his Bible. If he had a Bible like ours with pages, he didn't. He had a long scroll. Probably had to go read it in the temple and, and then memorize it and then go home and, and think about it. Um, but these would have been the tear-stained pages in his scriptures as he held on to the promises of God that were in the Bible. I'm going to read it for us again. Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Oh, those words are so meaningful for people who are in suffering, longing for comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Simeon looks up and he watches Mary and Joseph approaching and he sees the salvation of God and he's comforted and full of the Holy Spirit, he prophesies. I want you to look with me at verses 28 to 32 and consider our second point, revelation and glory. This is what Simeon prophesies. He took Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. 
You prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to announce God's salvation yet again in the narrative. Chapters 1 and 2 of Luke are full of these declarations of the good news that God's salvation is finally here. The Messiah has come according to the promises of God in Scripture. He's here. And again, Simeon's another person in that narrative declaring that same thing. And in particular, Simeon says two very important things about Jesus. Let me, see, let me show them to you. First, he calls Jesus a light for revelation to the Gentiles. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And he's called that because Jesus signals the massive fulfillment of God's plans to bring salvation to all people. Jesus is the one who fulfills God's intentions to pursue a broken world full of sinful people like us that are stuck in our suffering and brokenness in this world to redeem it faithfully in love and to send that salvation not just through one group of people, but to all groups of people. There's great irony here because these words are prophesied over Jesus at the temple. And to be clear, that temple was a place where all nations could come and could worship God. But they had to come there. They had to come to the the Jewish homeland. They had to come to this Jewish temple. And yet the arrival of Jesus signals something completely different, new and greater and bigger than imagined. Because Jesus himself prophesied that this physical temple would one day be destroyed. Soon in 70 AD, it would come crashing down. But then a new temple will be built in its place. A temple that isn't a building, but a people. A people that are filled up with the Holy Spirit of God. A people that are not geographically bound. A people that are not ethnically bound, but goes out into the entire world. This is what Jesus came to do. Christ City, this is the story of Christianity. Because something absolutely marvelous, breathtaking even, happened 2,000 years ago. As Jesus lived and died and was resurrected, something happened that's been at work ever since. The greatest revolution the world has ever seen began then. This Jewish Messiah from a Jewish people became the savior of the whole world. And Luke watched it happen. Luke traveled with Paul the apostle, the apostle who was tasked with bringing this good news out far and wide into the Roman world. And as he traveled with Paul and he watched these churches be planted and grow, he saw ancient people freed from sin and superstition. He saw ancient people who lived under this ethic that believed that that cruelty was okay. That that those who were strong had a right to oppress and get what they wanted from the weak. He saw them be transformed and freed from that. He watched people everywhere encounter the love of God for them through Jesus and be transformed by that love to love others. Even the broken and the humble and the hurting, the same way that God himself had become low and loved us through the incarnation of Jesus. Luke watched ancient Romans meet Jesus. 
Meet a gracious and compassionate and a good God and be forever changed by the experience. Simeon, now standing on the temple steps, he's holding Jesus in his arms. He declares that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And this is foreshadowing. This is only the beginning of what Luke wants to show us in Luke Acts. This is just a foreshadowing of, of both Luke Acts, but the book of Acts ended in the first century AD. This story has been continuing ever since, transforming this world, changing as Christianity goes and spreads. The power of the Holy Spirit went out and built his church up into the present day. So Simeon says, Jesus is this light of revelation to the Gentiles. And Simeon, Simeon says, second, that he is glory for your people, Israel. And glory is a term for renown or honor that's given to someone. And Jesus is the glory of Israel because what greater honor could a people have? I mean that seriously. What greater honor could a people have than to say, yeah, the savior of the whole world? Well, he was one of us. This is glory and honor for the Jewish people that God would send the savior of the world through them. Look, if you are a Greek, you probably still talk about Alexander the Great. You probably still talk about Aristotle. I like to look up and down the streets where I live in, in Greek town in Kitsilano because in Greek town in Kitsilano, the banners on the lampposts are all sayings from famous long dead Greek people. People who've been dead since the 5th century BC. Heraclitus and Aristotle and on and on and on and on. <laughs> because this is the honor and the glory for the elderly Greek people that still live in Kitsilano. Looking back to them. Or to change illustrations a little bit, if you're a sports fan and you have some significant player on your team from your hometown, this is glory and honor for you. It's why we have halls of fame. Right? If you've won the cup or the trophy for whatever that sport happens to be, that is glory and honor for you as a team. And Vancouver, I'm sorry to say, we've been waiting for longer than the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah for this to happen. <clears throat> and, and there's no hope that it's going to happen again this year. So I, I'm sorry to say. But Jesus was glory to God's people because through them, God had brought the Savior of the world. And yet, and yet how would they respond to this unbelievably good news? Why don't you look at our third point, wonder and division in verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled. No kidding. And what was said about him. See, Mary and Joseph, they heard the words prophesied over Jesus by Simeon. And they were in awe. And I have no question in my mind that that awe was filled with a lot of confusion and a lot of complicated emotions. What does all this mean? See, Luke depicts Mary and Joseph as these humble, trusting, obedient people, but also as people that, that are certainly struggling to grasp what's being told to them. How could they possibly, possibly know what all of this would mean? 
And especially, I think, in light of what Simeon was about to say in verses 34 to 35. Because Simeon says this, he says, Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. This child is appointed for a sign that is opposed. And Mary, by the way, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, Jesus is a savior who became a watershed moment in Israel's history. Some would hear the good news about Jesus and accept it. And they would rise, receiving the salvation of God through the Messiah that he sent. And others would see the salvation of God in Jesus and they'd reject it. They would stumble over it. How could God become a man? How could Mary and Joseph's son be the Messiah? How could the Messiah suffer and die on a Roman cross? So there would be opposition and conflict as the Jewish people wrestled with their response to the Savior that God had sent. Now, the New Testament scholar Joel Green, he comments on Simeon's words about the division Jesus would bring this way. He said, Thus we gain insight, thus we gain sight of an ominous cloud, the first explicit manifestation of the reality that God's purpose will not be universally supported. And the first candid portent that the narrative to follow will be a story of conflict. In Christ's city, this conflict is no more intimately felt than in the words that Simeon says next to Mary. Simeon says in verse 35, And the sword will pierce through your own soul also. And how could it be otherwise? you got to imagine Mary. She's a mother to the Messiah, to God incarnate. you got to imagine her motherly feelings are not always going to be in line with God's purposes for his son. There's going to be moments in Mary's life when, when push comes to shove, she's just going to want Jesus to stay her obedient son to keep the family together. There's going to be moments in her life when she sees Jesus being rejected by the religious rulers and, and suffering a lot. And she's like, I don't know, Jesus. There must have been moments in her life when she saw him harden in his purpose to go to Jerusalem where he knew he would be killed. And wonder if there could have been a different way. Would she accept the Savior that God had sent for her? Or would her desires as mother get in the way? You see, Christ City, receiving Jesus as Savior is often so difficult for us. It's often so difficult because Jesus just refuses to fit into our molds for him. He won't come and he won't be here as the Savior that we want him to be according to all the boundaries that we set for him. You can save this part of my life, Jesus, but I'd prefer to keep this part untouched by you. He's not that sort of Savior. 
Jesus didn't fit the Jewish desire for a powerful political savior. He didn't come that way. He didn't fit my desire or your desire for him to to meet us on our terms rather than for us to submit to him completely on his terms. He's a savior who must come before everyone and everything else in our lives. Jesus is a savior who must be first in our lives. First, even before our own families. And that was Mary's struggle. And later in Luke, Jesus even spoke twice about how following God and obedience must take priority even over the family. I want to read these passages to you. Then his mother and his brothers came to him. So Luke doesn't even say who they are. He just says, Jesus' mother and brothers. His mother and brothers came to Jesus. That's Mary and his brothers. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. All these people that were following Jesus wanting to know more about who he is as Messiah. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In the next text, it's in chapter 11. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and who keep it. I think you can see why these aren't the usual texts that we read at family Christmas time. But they're really important texts for us. See, Jesus isn't the savior of people who live for wonderful family time. And he won't accept second place. This is not what Christmas is about. No, Jesus is a savior who's come to comfort and to save those who put him radically at the center of their lives as they respond to him in humble, obedient faith. Jesus is a savior of those who put him radically at the center of their lives as they respond to him in humble and obedient faith. But you know what? I want to encourage you. There's no greater Christmas present than you could give to your family this year than by putting Jesus at the center of your life. Because Jesus never cheaps out on his followers. God the Father never holds back on his kids. And following him in this radical way, it is better. It is better, I promise you, than any other way that we could live in our lives. To have him radically first is good for us. You see, Christmas is good news, period. The arrival of Jesus is good news for us, Christ City. God himself has come for us as Savior. God himself, in tender mercy and compassion, God Most High, become alone, born as a human being, to enter into our suffering, to save us from from it. See, Christmas is good news for us. God Most High, emptying himself, becoming a servant to die in our place, so we can be forgiven 
washed clean from our guilt and from our shame, freed from our sin, so we can enter confidently as God's beloved children into relationship with God, knowing he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Christmas is good news. Because God has come, the promised Savior, Jesus Messiah, to bring peace and love into a world of hatred and division and strife. Christmas is good news because Jesus has come to lead us in the path of life. So how will we respond to him? He has come to comfort us to bring us salvation, how will we respond to him? Simeon says in verse 35 that Jesus has come so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Christ said, Jesus has come. How will you respond to him? You see, Jesus reveals the thoughts of our hearts by his arrival here because he reveals how we respond to him. Because as we encounter him, it's shown what's in our hearts. Do we love God? Do we want to live for him? Do we want to serve him? Do we trust his plans and his purposes for us? Or do we love ourselves? Do I love my way and my path of salvation more than the one that God has sent. See, God's ways are different from what we would naturally choose for ourselves. And what we choose, I think the things that we choose are actually really easy for us to see. I'll just describe a couple of them. I think it's easy for us to choose a path of life that looks like us putting our careers first. It's easy for us to choose a path of life that looks to us putting our comfort first. It's easy for us to live lives that choose a path of flourishing that puts our location of living first. Where will I live? How big will my house be? It's easy for us to live choosing a path of flourishing for ourselves that puts our education first, thinking that somehow good grades will give us all the happiness that we want in life as we get the opportunities we want. But Christ City, these and any other things that we're living for other than Jesus, they won't satisfy us and they won't save us. And ultimately the joy that they bring us in the moment, it will run out and we'll be left with no comfort at all. But there's this incredible news of Christmas. is that the infinite comfort and salvation of God is here for you and I. It's a gift. It's to be received with wide open arms by those who would come to Jesus with honest, repentant faith. He's not asking for your perfection. He's not. He's not asking you to fix yourself first. He's just asking you to come to him with honesty saying, God, I just want to follow you. And to be honest, it's pretty hard because I'm kind of messed up. <laughs> and I know that the idols in my life are really big. And here's what they are. But I want to lay them down. 
I want to put those things down so I can serve you instead. I want to trust that your way of salvation is as good as you said it is. Would you help me? Would you help me to follow you in obedient faith? I'm wondering this morning if if you would embrace the gift of Jesus' love and forgiveness with us as a church family this morning. Would you take a step to, to join in more closely with us, to learn together as a community to walk in obedience to Jesus? There's a great family to be part of in this venture. You don't have to do it alone. Let's pray together. I'll pray for us. Yeah, Father, we, we look at your word and we see this incredible news. You have sent Jesus as Savior. God, you have come to comfort broken and hurting people like us. Lord, many of us have so many things on in our lives right now. Pain and suffering and hardship and difficulty. So many of us are are struggling to to try to live to be better people than we actually are, and we can't do it. But you sent us a Savior who both forgives our sin and who frees us from sin and brings us into relationship with you. So God, would you help us to receive him together? Or would you humble us to put to, to death and to turn away from those areas of our lives that are just pulling us away from you? And would you draw us into wholehearted, obedient faith and trust in Jesus? We ask these things in his name. Amen.